The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals being interviewed and do not necessarily represent those of the Greater Winter Haven Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to It's Happening in the Haven. I'm your host, Katie Worthington Decker. Each episode, I get the privilege to speak to the amazing people taking Winter Haven and its surrounding Central Florida area to the next level. We're future-focused, celebrating our entrepreneurial history and leveraging it for our bright future ahead. Hello, everyone, and welcome to It's Happening in the Haven. I'm your host, Katie Worthington Decker, President and CEO of the Greater Winter Haven Chamber of Commerce. This podcast is produced by the Winter Haven Chamber and recorded at Dolphin Image Studios in Winter Haven. Our producer from Dolphin Image Studios is Joe. Hey, Joe, tell our listeners a little bit about the studios. Thanks, Katie. At Dolphin Image Studios, we are a full production film and television studio. We offer a 3,000-square-foot soundstage, a psych wall, an LED wall, a podcast studio, and a massive eight-acre backlot for all of your filming needs. To find us, go to facebook.com backslash Dolphin Image Studios, or find us on Instagram at Dolphin Image Studios. Welcome to our 51st episode. On today's episode, I am thrilled to welcome Quentin Rowe with WMG Rowe & Sons to speak about the Rowe legacy of citrus growing in Winter Haven, as well as the future for the industry going forward. I also interviewed Tommy Wooford, a young man debuting his originally written and composed musical, through the Theater Winter Haven Academy in May. Learn about his journey to writing his show at age 14 and now debuting it at age 17. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of our sponsors who believe in advancing commerce and community in Winter Haven. Citizens Bank and Trust, we've been your hometown full-service financial institution right here in your backyard since 1920. Now in our third generation of family ownership, We've served the Polk County community for over a hundred years. No matter your needs, we have the right financial solutions for you. At Citizens Bank and Trust, we've got you covered from secure checking and personal savings plans to a wide range of personal, mortgage, and business loans. Additionally, we offer a highly experienced group of trust and private banking professionals located right here in Polk County. It takes just one visit to one of our 14 convenient locations to experience what makes our bank special and why we invite you to give us a try. At Citizens Bank and Trust, we're proud to be your bank. Citizens-Bank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. If you've spent any time in Winter Haven, you've experienced the literal sweetness of the air when the orange blossoms are in bloom. Winter Haven, and Florida for that matter, has a long history of being leaders in the citrus industry. But that industry has changed dramatically over the years. I'm excited to welcome to the podcast Quinton Rowe with WMG Rowe & Sons to speak about his family's history in the industry and their continued investment and innovation in citrus. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I am so excited to be here. This is like (laughs) Really cool. It is. I am so excited that I ran into you at Richard's and, and cornered you. 
<laughs> and said, Quentin, will you come onto the podcast? <laughs> it didn't take a whole lot of arm twisting. No, it didn't. It didn't. Well, anytime uh, an opportunity to share the, the story of your family, but the story of the citrus industry in general, I know you like to take advantage of. So, so we'll start at the very beginning, if you will. Um, the Rowe family has been uh, in the citrus industry in Winter Haven for a very long time. So how did your family come to be here? And tell a little bit about that history on how it got started. Uh, it's kind of a cool story. Uh, my grandfather, as a very young man, we'll call him teenager, mm-hmm. was cutting ice on the upper Hudson River in New York State. And what that meant was during the winter, they would go out and they would cut 300-pound blocks of ice out of the middle of the river. They'd drag them over to the shore. They'd store them on these ice houses and cover the ice with sawdust. Mm-hmm. During the summer, each ice house had its own segment of the city that they would service and it just so happened that my grandfather's ice house was servicing the water street market which was the produce market at the time after a year or two of barging the ice down during this summer he realized that if he worked with all the growers in the upper hudson valley which was growing all the produce for the city he could carry their fruits and vegetables cold down to the market ha cool idea, right? (laughs) Turn of the century. So he did that. And through that experience, got to meet and know all the traders down in the produce market. Mm -hmm. Took the money back up. That went on for a few years. He got a wild hair. We don't know why. It's in the Rogene. I don't get it. (laughs) But he picked up and moved to Florida and to Winter Haven. Well, it was in the central Florida area, not Winter Haven at first. Mm -hmm. Landed here, saw what was going on with this fledgling citrus industry, and decided, hmm, I see an opportunity. He started taking growers' fruit and shipping it up to his customers in New York. There was a margin in the middle, and that's how he got started. And when was that? When did he land here in Central Florida? It was somewhere during the uh, early teens. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a Winter Haven Fruit Sales Corp which was his original business. And that was prior to William G. Rowan Sons, Mm -hmm. which is the parent company now. And he did this buy-sell trade thing. Uh, He actually contracted with packing houses to pack fruit for him. And he he was a pretty big wheel for uh, a little upstart boy from New York. Yeah, that's a good time when you have no fear. You just come down and you just, I think I can make this work. Yeah, true sense of entrepreneurism right there. Uh, that's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. So he's into his first, uh, you know, decade or something like that. And along comes Seaboard Coastline. Now, Seaboard Coastline, if you remember the railroads during the early 1900s, they were building Florida. You had Flagler going down the West Coast. You had Platt going or East Coast. You had Platt going down the West Coast. Well, Seaboard was going down the center and they were basically building railroads to get the pine, the large pine woods uh, out of Florida, and the cypress. Well, as that logging business kind of started to wind down a little bit, they looked at this fledgling citrus industry, and at that point, all the citrus was being packed in moss and baskets and beginning of fledgling crates, and it was being shipped out to the coast through our river system. Hmm. You don't think of Florida with the no, river system. No, you don't. But yeah. 
That's why the St. John's was such a big waterway because they could go all the way up to uh, collect all the way up to Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. Fort Pierce, Tampa, they were all big ports that took this fruit, put it on steamships, and went up to wherever the markets were. Mm -hmm. The railroad seaboard looked at this and went, hmm, opportunity. They started building packing houses. So mm -hmm. our packing house in Winter Haven was literally built from my grandfather by Seaboard Coastline. And the only requirement was get off those ships and carry all your freight on my train. Mm. They probably built 100 packing houses in this state for growers. And wow. they wiped out the uh, steamship freight industry and built a giant industry for fresh fruit. Did they uh, build it and then sell it? Or did your grandfather lease it? Or how did that work? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have any firm records of that. We just know You just assume it's yours. <laughs> they built it and we own it. I mean, that really is brilliant. I mean, because that construction cost and I mean, that's got to be a, a barrier um, to entry for those entrepreneurs. But if you want a client, just build what they need right next to your resource. And um, wow, that's amazing. And you all are still utilizing that original building today or is it no it, yeah. it's still the original mm. it's been uh, added on to and some steels replaced some wood and mm -hmm. some concretes replaced some wood but mm -hmm. basically it's the same structure um i think one of the things that's really interesting about it is of those 100 plus that were originally built there's probably only about five left really and the rest of them Caught a, caught a match somewhere along oh, the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Some of them got torn down for their timber because mm -hmm. the old heart of pine timber, you can't even drill into it. Mm. It's 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 an amazing piece of wood. Wow. That I mean, I, you're, the building is beautiful. I often think if anybody Thank wants you. a really, um, you know, kind of unique engagement photo or wedding photo, I and mean, the building really is beautiful um, right there along the, the railway, um, which is now the Amtrak um, yes. uh, railway that runs uh, right along close to your building there. So he got his packing house. Then what happened? Uh, so then he started planting some groves, uh, and he was still handling a tremendous amount of uh, other growers' fruit. And at some point, uh, he had two sons. My father was Willard, and my uncle was Fred. They both went to Princeton, and they went back and forth on the trains. Mm -hmm. That was standard operating procedure back then. Mm -hmm. You get on the train in Winter Haven, you go to Princeton. Mm -hmm. uh, and both of them ended up in World War II. My father in the Atlantic uh, European Theater, and my uncle was in the um, Navy in the Pacific Theater. Both of them came home, and they went to work with my grandfather. And my dad was in charge of the groves, and my uncle was in charge of the sales. So in that generation, my dad turned money into fruit, and my uncle turned fruit into money. <laughs> uh, and they, they really started focusing on planting a lot of tangerines. Mm -hmm. That kind of became uh, their calling card. Uh, Even back then, it was yes. tangerines. Okay. Yes, different varieties, but the same concept was true. If you took a lot of care, it was harder to handle the tangerines than it was oranges or grapefruit. Mm -hmm. If you took a lot of care, handled them properly, grew them right, uh, did the harvesting job correctly, then you could get a really good return at the market. Were there a lot of other... Um, 
tangerine farmers in the Winter Haven area at the time, or were you guys kind of the main tangerine farmer? We were probably the main ones in Winter Haven. Or grower. Uh, Do I say farmer yeah. or grower? <laughs> we prefer grower. Grower, okay. <laughs> we, we like our own little clique away from all the other ones. You know, but, no, um, but tangerines were very, very um, popular out of Florida uh, during that time. And there were um, literally millions of boxes grown, even up into the um, mid-70s. There were like 7 million boxes of Dancy Tangerines grown. Now that's 7 million boxes into a country that wasn't consuming tangerines the way they are today. Mm -hmm. And it was that variety was only there for about six or seven weeks. Mm. So it was like, oh, crazy amount of fruit. Mm -hmm. um, the freezes of the 1980s started whittling down on that population of tangerines tremendously and uh, moved the whole industry south, uh, changed the complexion, and destroyed a lot of livelihoods. Um, a lot of millionaires became paupers overnight. Mm. And uh, we were, you know, the definition of luck. Mm -hmm. What's that? Uh, where preparation and hard work meet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if anything, my father was a planner mm -hmm. and he planned for the freezes far in excess of what anybody else thought was reasonable and consequently when we had these major freezes we survived them far beyond what anybody thought was reasonable mm -hmm. so it was uh, a little bit of a windfall for us until the last one the 89 hurricane the 89 freeze was pretty devastating mm -hmm. uh, but that's farming yeah it was um so kind of rewinding a little bit when you were growing up did you know that you were going to be in the citrus industry was it kind of a foregone conclusion or what what is that dynamic like in your family so there were seven kids mm -hmm. uh, four girls three boys um at one point five of the seven were working in the business uh and there was always great passion about it you you just didn't have a conversation at the house, even as a little kid that didn't revolve around citrus. We grew up in a grove. We uh, had horses. We rode the horses in the grove. Um, you cool off in the lake and go back and ride in the grove some more. Um, you had orange fights in the grove. As little kids, you uh, were always uh, called on to do heater pots during the cold, cold night. So... 10, 11, 12, you're out there with heater pots and literally turning the sky gray uh, to try to create your own cloud layer mm -hmm. over the grove to keep the heat in. Now, is that because I, I know very little about how it all works? I mean, are you out there fanning the steam or like how does that work? I always think of okay. the scene from this romantic movie called, um, uh, I can't remember what it is, the movie, Ke Keanu Reeves in it, where there's a freeze one night and they've got all the fire and they're fanning the flames over the grapes in Italy or something. <laughs> but not that Not course. as romantic as that, no. no. no, no, no. <laughs> so if you take your very worst environmental hat and put it on, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what we were doing. Um, like 50 heater pots per acre. Oh. Each heater pot burned 11 gallons of diesel fuel. 
Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Wow. And you go through and you light each of these heater pots mm -hmm. and they put out this big cloud of black smoke with a lot of heat and you turn the sky gray mm -hmm. and uh, it trapped the heat between this uh, that new cloud layer you created in the ground. The, the toxic cloud layer. Yes. <laughs> And you How'd your neighbors feel about that? I guess they were used to it. I mean. <laughs> um, so Citrus built this town. Yeah. And uh, it built all the medical facilities you see. It built uh, everything that's uh, in my mind. Mm -hmm. I'm a little biased, but uh, <laughs> everything that has great history in this town was built by Citrus. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When did you join the family? I mean, besides having, besides when they woke you up in the middle of the night and said, okay, kids, out to the fields. But when did you really become engaged in the, the business of the family business? Um, so there was never a time growing up when I thought I would do anything other than this. Mm. Uh, I graduated from college in 1980 and immediately went to work for the family business. All those tales about dads working their kids for nothing, mm -hmm. I, I own that tale. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty pathetic. Uh, it was really pathetic. I, I can't treat my kids like that. that, that <laughs> I did better. Um, but no, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. The long days, the crazy conditions. Uh, there was nothing about it I didn't love. I started out on the Grove side, and then in my generation, uh, there were, I, I became the packing marketing side. So I was the guy turning fruit into money. Mm -hmm. My older brother, he was first, so he picked growing. And <laughs> he turned uh, money into fruit. Mm -hmm. And our younger brother, he accounted for it going both ways. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get back to citrus in a minute, but I want to ask you a question I'd love to ask people who are, um, spend a lot of time uh, in Winter Haven or were born in Winter Haven and, and this is their, their hometown. What was it like in your mindset growing up in Winter Haven? Um, Mayberry? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, uh, everybody knew everybody. Uh, there was uh, a whole lot of intermarried families. Mm -hmm. That didn't sound good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We had plenty of forks in those trees. But, yeah. uh, the, <laughs> the appropriate number of forks. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, but really, it was a very tight community. And um, I just remember uh, um, my entire youth and growing up, uh, whether it was church, whether it was social gatherings, that's what people did. They went to each other's houses. Mm -hmm. They gathered. Uh, they a lot of social occasions, and it was a very connected community, mm -hmm. very connected. Mm -hmm. And even still today, there's still a lot of people that you grew up with that are in the area. Oh, yes. It, You're it, smiling. It, I feel like there's so many secrets you know. <laughs> it, it cracks me out because when you're in high school and you're graduating from, I'm never coming back to this right. town. They're all here. Yes. <laughs> they 100%. are all here. And it just cracks me up. I searched the world over, and I found Winter Haven. Yeah. Again. Um, so that's really funny. And they raise their kids here and those kids are doing the same thing. I'm watching the kids from my generation come back here, uh, their kids, their kids yeah. come back here and do the same thing. My, my 
dear wife, Lori, is uh, the director of Beamer Preschool. Oh, yes. And she's seeing these generational families come back through now. I taught you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I think we all go through that. And I mean, I was a newbie to Polk County. We moved here from uh, Tennessee right for high school. But I was the same way. I was like, I'm not coming back there. You know, once I'm gone, I'm gone. And then you realize it's a really great place to be and to raise a family and to to be with your family. Um, And it's 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 so neat to see that generation coming back and getting involved in their family businesses and reinvesting in the the next generation. And then we're all having kids. So that next generation is coming along. So there's one more thing that was really, really cool. I can't stop telling you how great the leadership in this city was to envision what we could be Mm -hmm. and uh, not let us become what so many other small uh, communities in Central Florida have become. Mm-hmm. Uh, just great wisdom and leadership uh, from the Ellie Threckles and uh, et cetera. Just that list is long, and mm-hmm. I shouldn't be name-picking, but <laughs> I, I just have such tremendous respect for their ability to vision what we could be and not let us become something bad. Mm-hmm. And to protect the assets that everyone worked so hard for. As you said, Citrus built this town and a lot of money and time and love and passion was poured into this community uh, over the years. So you talk about the railroad and how the railroad came right through downtown Winter Haven. Um, And to, for the city back in the, the 80s to to take control of that uh, rail bed for the rails to trails. Exactly. Um, and it's, you know, it's a beautiful pathway and it takes time. I think um, Ellie Threckle once said, well, I've been working on this for 20 years, 30 <laughs> years, you know, the trail on uh, around Lake Elbert. That's a great example oh. of something that's been talked about generationally. Um, so a lot of these things take time, but it, as you, um, as you can plant the seeds of the trees that you may never sit under. It's just so important and you can see that work and and my generation and my kids are reaping the benefit of that because of that planning and and you don't always get it right but you tweak it and you evolve it over the years and even to what now is 21 years ago when the city made the investments in the downtown and you and I see each other at Richard's a couple times a week. Um, that investment in the downtown core to say we're not going to let this downtown exactly. die is so special. It really is. And how many other communities have you gone to where they lost it? They can't get it back. Mm-mm. It's gone. Mm-hmm. And Winter Haven saw it, realized that, and preserved it. And right. Magic. It is. It really is. And now we're seeing the the 2.0, I'd say even 3.0 version of that mm-hmm. right now with the increase in residential that's getting built in the downtown core. Um, and what I love, especially, and I'm sure it, it um, you know, a little twinkle in your eye to see the number of people that are paying homage to the the past. You know, when Grove Roots came out, did you just smile here? here? I mean, the, everything is built around that foundational citrus history. Um, um, when Joe opened Grove Roots, from Ab- the names of the absolutely. beer to the murals on the walls, you know, just paying homage to that. We had some good talks before. Uh, did you? He, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So so back to the citrus industry. So you okay. talked a little bit about, um, and I've heard you speak about the, the freeze in the 80s and really how 
transformational that time period was for the industry in Florida. Talk a little bit about, um, you know, not just the, the, the freezing through the 80s, but all of the things, um, just truly monumental things that have happened to this industry over the last several decades. So uh, I'll start with the freezes of the 80s. Um, they were pretty traumatic. Uh, they destroyed a lot of lives. They also created a lot of new opportunities. It's kind of like um, uh, if you uh, wiped all the dice off the wall and you threw them back out and said, what are you going to do now? Uh, well, that's kind of what it was like. Some failed and some grew again. Um, and for us, uh, I, th I think if there's a hallmark of our family and our, our company, it's been our ability to react quickly to adverse situations and to reinvent ourselves as many times as necessary, as often as necessary. Um, so uh, the decade of the 90s was really a decade of low prices. And, and uh, everybody thought the freezes of the 80s would lead to high prices during the 90s. They acted accordingly, but Brazil, we found out that we were in a world market, and Brazil had been planting wildly during the 1980s, and mm -hmm. their crops were coming in huge in the 1990s when we were trying to recover, and mm -hmm. it was pretty brutal. Um, so canker hit uh, somewhere around 2000, then we had the major hurricanes of 04, mm -hmm. and we didn't really realize it then, but those hurricane winds were starting to spread greening mm -hmm. and, and what is greening um i'm going to give you the elevator version <laughs> um there's a whole center in lake alford dedicated to this so i understand it's very complicated <laughs> they only spend about a hundred million dollars a year trying to fix it yeah. so um but greening is a bacterium it's mm -hmm. spread by an insect called a psyllid which is as common in florida as a mosquito mm -hmm. so you're not going to get rid of the vector mm -hmm. The disease itself is a bacterium. It, uh, when the insect bites a tree, one bite, well, this is terrible, but mm -hmm. we say one bite, one dead tree. Mm -hmm. Well, really one bite, one infected tree, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. um, the disease spreads throughout the tree. You don't see it for 12 to 18 months, and it's lodging in the phloem of the tree. Okay, so high school biology. <laughs> uh, you're Leaves uh, do photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. They use all the water, mineral, nutrients that the roots did. They go up through the tree in the xylem. Carbohydrates are formed from that photosynthesis in the leaves, and those carbohydrates are taken back down to the roots through the phloem. Mm. When the phloem gets clogged up with this greening bacterium, mm -hmm. it starts starving the roots. The roots can no longer forage. They can no longer mm. pick up all the waters, minerals, nutrients, fertilizers needed to transfer back up through the xylem. And so the first thing that's happening is your roots are atrophying back underneath the ground. You can't see that. What happens next is the tree starts to yellow out because it's not getting all the right stuff up in the leaves, which are your factories. Mm -hmm. So that yellowing is what we uh, see first. See the first. first yeah. And we're 12 to 18 months down the road from when the real infection was started. Mm -hmm. So you got all these infected trees. 100% of the trees in Florida are infected. And if you can afford really good drugs, so you have a high-value crop, mm -hmm. then you can treat the roots, you can treat the leaves separately, independent of each other now, and you can act that, have that tree act 
you know, 75% of normal, okay? If you don't have a high-value crop, uh, like the juice market crashes or something, you have to cut back on your inputs, um, then your tree is going to die. A hundred percent of the trees in Florida are infected? Yes. Wow. Every new tree that gets planted within a week, it's been bitten and infected. Unbelievable. There is no substitute. Texas Mm -hmm. is well on its way. Mm -hmm. Texas is pretty much dead now, thanks to that last hurricane, or that last freeze. Mm -hmm. And California, you read constantly, they've got new finds going on every day. So Mm -hmm. it's spreading. So this disease has changed our world again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to back up on our family a little bit. So back during the 1980s, late 1980s, I was up in New York City doing a sales call. And wow, there was this little wooden carton of these cute little tangerines coming in from Spain. They called them clementines. Mm-hmm. First time I'd ever seen them. And the buyer said, wow, you got to look at these things. These things are so cool. They're seedless. And I'm sitting here selling him seedy tangerines (laughs) at the same time. And I'm going, how can I compete with this? So I come back to Florida. Well, we had two major breeding organizations in Florida at the time, USDA and the University of Florida. They were both breeding for oranges and they didn't have time to stop and mess up and Mm -hmm. go after tangerines. Not to mention it was a long process. Like their normal release cycle is 35 to 50 years. Really? 35 to 50 years. Wow. Okay. So nothing was going to snap its fingers and fix it. My sister Martha was running a tissue culture lab for our company. It was called Series 2000. She had developed a technique um, with the very latest in biology technology. (laughs) Uh, And we said... But she was doing philodendrons and Gerber daisies, and she was creating new varieties of philodendrons and Gerber daisies every year. Well, we weren't very good at selling plants. Mm-hmm. We figured that out. And we said, well, do you think you can develop a new variety of tangerine? She said, well, yeah, we can. It won't be real quick. Oh, yeah, it'll be fast. <laughs> now, all of us kids are in our late 20s, early 30s, right? <laughs> so we got this, you know. <laughs> A little bit of piss and vinegar, maybe a whole lot. Mm. Uh, and so we decide, ah, that's where we're going. So we start pouring money at this project. And Martha was amazing in her work and research and all the different creations. And when we finally had to shut that whole project down for it just spending a lot of money on it, we had 1,600 unique little plantlets. Really? Each one of them were as different as the children that you have. Mm -hmm. You knew what their parents were, but you had no idea how the kids were going to turn out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what it's like. And so, but you did all these crosses and you got all these things. And so we planted them out on uh, each one on four different rootstocks. And then we did something that was really unique in the breeding world. I hope this is interesting. It is fascinating, actually. So when anybody picks up a fruit at their grocery store, they should really appreciate (laughs) what they're picking up because this is a lot of work. Uh, Yeah, decades of work. (laughs) Um, So, uh, and this was like uh, mid-90s when we finally shut down and we had all these 16 plantlets. Mm -hmm. So we planted them out and we did something that was really unique. We did uh, what we call tough love, okay? 
if you caught any of the diseases that were current at the time, if you didn't like a little cold, if you didn't like a little uh, dry, um, if uh, the bugs ate on you too much, if you didn't produce quickly, if you didn't produce a lot, it, all those things, all those are grower characteristics. They mean if you do all those things well, the grower's going to love you. Mm. Okay, So we culled hard and we got down to about 50 in about eight years. We took those 50, we replanted them, did a whole setup again. And that second time around, we were looking for consumer characteristics. Every other breeding program in the world does consumer characteristics first. And we said, no, I don't care how good you are. If you don't have grower characteristics, I don't want you. I don't want you part of the family at all. Mm -hmm. Run away. I cut <laughs> you off. So of these 50 that we kept and read did, um, we were looking strictly for consumer characteristics. Easy to peel, seedless, um, all those sweet, nice, juicy, good things that you want. And we came up with about five out of that, out of that second eight-year tranche that we said, these are really good. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about, I think we kept seven. Um, out of that, our number one superstar is Juicy Crunch. Oh, my goodness. It's the best tangerine in the world. There's nothing like it anywhere. I mean, I can go on and on about that one, but it's the top of the pile. Autumn Honey is number two. It's almost as good as Juicy Crunch. It's just crazy good pe big piece of fruit. All the characteristics you're looking for. Next one was we ran out of fun names, so we called this one the Row Tangerine. Mm -hmm. It literally is like the Clementine that you would get out of California right now. It's seedless, easy to peel, small. Um, but as we look at our future, we're saying small tangerines are really problematic coming out of the Florida environment because the labor costs are going through the roof. It's hard to handle those small varieties and the difference between handling a small piece of fruit and a large piece of fruit like autumn honey or juicy crunch is really big dollars. Mm -hmm. So we're saying, oh, I love you, but you're going to have to sit on sidelines a little while and yeah. maybe somebody will want you for the backyard. So yeah. it's a good piece of fruit. Uh, we we grow about 50 acres of them, and that's not, but our real growth model right now is autumn honey and juicy crunch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the juicy crunch that was the one that you brought to that city commission meeting that Ab one time, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I and it was delicious. It was delicious. I think I texted you later and said, "This is an amazing piece of fruit." It really was. So, well, and to hear just how um, how much love and passion and work has gone into that. Um, and your family has continued to invest in um, uh, the citrus industry and in growing in the industry and in planting trees. Talk about why, as so many of your um, cohorts and neighbors have said, you know what, let's sell the grove to a real estate developer or let's do this. Why has your family said, no, we're going to continue to invest in this? Um, autumn honey and juicy crunch. <laughs> and, and Because the world needs those two things. <laughs> uh, well, it's probably not that altruistic. Uh, they're profitable. Yeah, yeah. They're profitable to grow. And uh, that's at the bottom of... Every farmer's heart is, I get to do what I want, and it's good for the environment, and I make a profit doing it. Mm -hmm. That last part has been extremely hard for most citrus growers, but for um, us with this uh, invention, um, 
that's a bright spot in the future. Everybody loves them. It doesn't matter where you are, what walk of life you're in. When I put an autumn honey or a juicy crunch in front of you, you're going, wow, that is so good. Where can I get another one? Mm -hmm. um, and that's what really brought our fourth generation back to the business. Uh, they're all in with uh, these new varieties uh, from the growing to the packing to the selling of them. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. And, and I remember what a pain in the butt I was to my dad. <laughs> golly. <laughs> and I'm not going to say that they're a pain in the butt to me, but golly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how many, how many of the fourth generation? So you had, you had seven or a total of seven in your generation. How many of the next generation have, have gotten involved in the business? Uh, there's four right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're, they're all pretty passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And what does the future of the industry look like for them? For them, they've got a long, strong, good run with Autumn Honey and Juicy Crunch. Mm -hmm. I hate to sound like a broken record, but it is. <laughs> um, other tangerine varieties, um, uh, there's a, a, a complete separate tier uh, below that that have a modicum of profit to them mm -hmm. that uh, will be around and will be successful. Um, until we figure out greening, oranges uh, have got a real uh, struggle in front of them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a world commodity, and somebody that doesn't have greening or isn't affected as bad by greening mm -hmm. is going to fare better than we are right now. Does, is Brazil as affected by greening as we are? Yes, they are. Part of it gets down to the soil. Mm. Uh, everything you love about a Florida soil for growing citrus is everything you hate about growing citrus with greening. Mm. Uh, it's very sandy. Everything goes right through it. Uh, that's great if you have a real good feeding tree that's got all its capillary root system in mm -hmm. place. It traps everything, so it's almost like growing it hydroponically. Mm -hmm. It gets what you give, and uh, it's, it's. But when it can't feed well, right? Then you can't give it enough. Mm -hmm. And unlike in a more loamy or clay soil, uh, there's still a lot of organic matter tracked trapped in that soil that even a infected tree can still garner and get goody out of it, if you mm. will. Mm. Did that make sense? That did make sense, yeah. Okay. So this, the soil is more uh, hospitable to the tree than um, if, even if it's affected. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, if someone had never tried the, the Juicy Crunch or um, the Autumn Honey, honey, Autumn Honey, where can they? Where, where can they seek these out? So... Um, the autumn honey starts in mid-November and goes through December. The juicy crunch starts right at Christmas time and goes through February. Uh, Publix is an amazing partner on those varieties for us. Um, HEB in Texas, uh, and those two got uh, the lion's share of the volume this year, mm -hmm. just stepping up and being really good partners for us. Mm -hmm. uh, our volume will grow in future years, and uh, our spread will become greater, but uh, happy to be hometown heroes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And are the, how are they labeled? Are they labeled under the store? Are they labeled under you? Or how can they can someone tell that they're having one of your 
tangerines. They've actually got a big sticker on them that yeah. says Autumn Honey or Juicy Crunch. Okay, okay. So and, by the brand, by the name of yes. the... Okay. And next year, we, we really expect to see more shelf talking. Mm -hmm. um, well, shelves don't talk, but uh, <laughs> more signage okay. at shelf level. Mm -hmm. Very good. What what else do you want our listeners to know about, about the industry, about your family? So... Uh, my family, probably not so much. Uh, <laughs> no. Everybody doesn't like to talk about their families. But uh, from the industry point of view, um, I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression. This industry, like our family, uh, has a great tradition of remaking itself, um, figuring out how to move forward in the face of adversity, never giving up, uh, fighting for just being good, pure uh stewards of the land and figuring out how to make citrus work mm -hmm. so i don't look for that to change it'll probably change in uh what that industry looked like but the industry will be there mm -hmm. well we are so grateful to your family for the investment that you have continued to make in this community it's it's such a wonderful thing to see just generally, generationally, how your family has invested. I mean, I didn't realize how far back the family history went in the Winter Haven community. I mean, you are one of the foundational families of, of Winter Haven and of Polk County, um, and certainly from that industry. But you continue to. You continue to grow and, and bring um, family members back to be a part of the industry, but to continue to reinvest. Um, because at the end of the day, it's a business. You are employing people from, from the people that are um, on the business side of your industry to the people that are seasonal workers and those individuals that that, um, you know, bring the product to market. Uh, it's incredible to see how um, your family and your business has made a great life for so many people in this community. And so thank you and thank you to your family for that investment. Thank you, Katie. That's nice. Absolutely. Thanks for being on the podcast today, Quentin. Yay! <laughs> Women are incredible. Taking care of our health is the best thing we can do for ourselves and our families. That's why Advent Health provides nationally ranked OB and GYN care close to home. From well woman services to pregnancy care to advanced GYN surgery, our team provides a personalized approach for every woman in every stage of life. At Advent Health Heart of Florida, you can access the expertise and whole person support you need. Start your journey today at heartofflordawomen.com. As a former drama kid myself, I have a special place in my heart for those in the theater. Today's second guest is no exception. Tommy Wolford is a 17-year-old who is going places. He is set to debut his very first musical in May, and after listening to him today, I think you'll agree that he is a promising future ahead. 
Welcome to the podcast, Tommy. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I am excited to have you here, too. So, Tommy, you are a student in Theater Winter Haven's Academy. Why did you get involved in theater? To be honest, I got in, in the theater like so many other kids. I was just cast in a church play. I remember getting the main role in this Bible story musical. I just fell in love with performing. You know, we started seeking out more opportunities to cultivate that passion, and Theater Winter Haven's classes were, you know, hit our radar. So what part of theater productions is most interesting to you? Uh... I think just the fact that theater is a collaboration of all the arts, you know, it has music, acting, dancing, and designing, and it really is a collaboration of all these different components of entertainment. So I wanted to act and write, and, and I enjoyed music, so theater was a great way for me to do it all at the same time. Absolutely. And when we met, you actually reached out over social media um, yes. looking for help promoting a project that you are working on for the Theater Academy. Okay. When did you begin to work on this project? Um, I began writing this show when I was like 14 years old. Wow. And uh, that was the time that I really started jumping into the theater world. So, you know, I was listening to cast recordings and, you know, jumping on different fandoms with shows. So I was really inspired to write my own. And so were you into kind of Broadway type of shows before? Or what kind of theater were you into at that point when you started doing your research? Honestly, when I got into theater, it was like the cast recording world. It was like the musicals, you know? Yeah. Uh, I remember being in the backseat of my friend's car. Like, this is Hamilton. Like, what is this hip-hop? Like, <laughs> you know, I'm a huge hip-hop fan as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, mainly, like, before actually going to see shows and, you know, performing arts centers, it was just, like, listening to the different cast recordings. Right. And, you know, Hamilton is one of those that it's very helpful to listen to the cast yes. recording before you go to see it. Yes, exactly. I did not do that. And then I spent half the time in the theater going, wait, what, what did he right, just say? Right, and we listened to it on the way home. I'm like, oh, that makes so much more sense right. than he was saying. So um, what is your show called and what is it about? Yeah, so the show is called Malcolm X Musical, and it's about human rights activist Malcolm X. Uh, in the show, we follow him from his life of crime in Harlem, New York, to his work as a minister and a social activist. And why did you feel like this was an important topic that you wanted to cover? Uh, I feel like it's an important topic to cover because the stories and characters can really speak to life today. And uh, when I when I see a show, I can see myself in certain characters. So I hope people leave looking inward and asking themselves, uh, can I do better and, and where do I fall in these stories and narratives? Were you inspired by any other shows to tackle a topic that's rooted in history? Yeah, uh, The Greatest Showman you know, by Benj and Paul. Uh, Hamilton, of course. I'm I'm a product of today's American theater, so anything by Lynn Miranda uh, is really you <laughs> I know, love him. You know, He's yeah, so good. You know, idol. Uh, Ain't too proud. That's the story of the Temptations. Yes. All these shows, you know, really did inspire me to tackle uh, topics in in history. Mm-hmm. What resources did you use to help you write the book for this show? Uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X was my main resource for information. However, I did come across an array of Malcolm X interviews and audio speeches that I pulled information from, uh, which was amazing because I could actually hear his voice and you know his actual words. Mm-hmm. So Malcolm X can sometimes be viewed as a controversial figure in history. Yes. What do you think someone will learn about him during this show? I just think the backstory. I think people will learn his backstory, and you know it will shine light on some of his views. You know, you're right; he was very controversial, but I think people will learn. Uh, why, and they will leave with a better understanding of who he really was. Mm-hmm. What have, um, side note question for you, what have you learned about him through this process? Uh, honestly, when I when I began um, researching him as an individual, I was actually working on a project 
um, about the civil rights movement as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. So I was writing about Rosa Parks. I was writing about Dr. King, Hampton, Sam Cooke. And we were going on a trip, so I got his autobiography to write his section of that show. Mm -hmm. And then I read the book, and I was like, four chapters in, I'm like, no, this is the show. This is (laughs) the thing. And I think I learned from him. um, I learned not to get pushed around. I learned um, to really respect myself and learn that respecting myself helps me to um, respect other people and, and look at them how they should be seen. Do you feel like everyone can take a piece of his story and kind of internalize it and reflect on themselves as they learn more about him Absol- and his life? Absolutely. I think everyone can see him in themselves um, when it comes to his um, his passion, his um, delivery and his speeches, like the fire that he had. I think everyone can say, okay, you know, how can I take the principle and the heart of who Malcolm was and apply it to my life and how can I be Malcolm X in my daily, you know, situations mm-hmm. in life. So, When will the show debut at Theater Winter Haven? Yes, uh, the show premieres May 29th at 7.30, so I'm really excited. And is it um, is it a one-man show, or are you the are you also acting in it? <laughs> uh, no, it's not a one-man show. There's okay. a cast of 10, 10 performers. Ten people, okay. Yeah, it's a full cast. We're, we're currently actually casting the show, um, and... I don't know. I'm a, I'm the writer. I'm the I'm the composer and the director. I don't know if I'll quite be on stage yet, but we'll see. Mm. Got to come to see that. <laughs> so, how exciting is it for you to see something that you've been working on for three years? Right, you're 17 now, so yes, for ma'am. three years you've been um, working on this show, refining this show. If I know um, uh, actors, and certainly on the directing side, uh, perfecting or <laughs> being a perfectionist. Hey. On your show, so uh, what's it like to kind of have this, your baby come to life in yeah, this way? It's surreal. Like it, you know, we would be in class at Theodore in Haven, and I talked to my friend Isaac. I'd be like, "Yeah, one day my show is gonna be on stage." It's like it's I show myself to be prophetic in that. Like it's mm-hmm. actually happening now. Uh, it's an amazing opportunity, and I I do appreciate you know everybody over at Theodore in Haven for um, helping it come to life. So you said May 29th is when it will debut that evening. How can someone listening see the show? There's going to be continuous uh, updates um, by Theodore Winter Haven and myself. Um, it's actually open to the public, so I'm just inviting anybody to come free of charge. So, Very good. And what would be your dream for the future of Malcolm X the musical? Uh, my, my dream for Malcolm X in the future is what, what I see is like uh, historical theaters uh, all across the country taking it to different schools and um, trying to, you know, get it to people who may not have the access uh, to see live theater normally. Um, that's kind of my dream with it. And what about you personally? What are what are your aspirations? What do you want? I, I know it sounds weird because everyone when you're 17 is yeah. like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know? <laughs> and they all expect you to have it figured out right now. Right. But what what do you hope to do going forward? I think I think many things. Um, definitely theater. Definitely acting and songwriting. Um, I also have like a passion for urban ministries and like going into different communities and um, trying to be a light in that sense. Um, I think theater has helped me see you don't have to choose one thing. You can mm-hmm. be like you look at like people in history like Galileo was like he was a composer, but he was also like a great mathematician. Like mm-hmm. he was like had a wide range of things that he was good at. So um, definitely, you know, the arts and also some sort of um outreach. Mm -hmm. Well, if there's one thing uh, that the arts, I think, teaches you is that it makes you an incredibly well-rounded individual. Um, And so being able to take the skill sets that you learn through, uh, through theater, through being exposed 
to so many different types of personalities and different types of backgrounds in that theater setting right. allows really positioned you in my in my um, maybe somewhat biased uh, opinion <laughs> positioned you for a better pathway to life because you have an appreciation on how differences can bring together something so beautiful in the way of a show. So I've known you all of 10 minutes, Tommy, and I know that you're going to change the world. So, wow. <laughs> um, so it really is exciting. Um, and, you know, I, I, really from the moment that you reached out to me over social media, I knew that he's going to make it because he's not afraid to, to reach out and to make sure that people know um, what you're going to do to change the world. So, um, Tommy, you have a show, Malcolm X, the musical, that will be in its uh, stage debut, yes. besides probably your parents' living room, the stage <laughs> debut exactly. on um, May 29th. And what time you said? 7.30? 7.30 at Theater Winter Haven at the Chain of Lakes complex yes. in winter haven is there anything else you want our audience to know uh, i would just say uh if you can make sure you come see the show by any means necessary mm -hmm. absolutely <laughs> wonderful tommy thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thank you so much for having me i appreciate it We'd like to welcome and thank Mahalik Auto Group for sponsoring season two of our podcast. This family-owned and operated business was first founded in 1966 in Michigan by Ralph Mahalik Sr. The family opened Winter Haven Dodge Chrysler Jeep Ram in 1991 and continued to expand in Polk County, now owning three additional dealerships at Posner Park, in Lake Wales, and Alfa Romeo Fiat of Winter Haven. Not only are their teams dedicated to finding you the perfect vehicle, but they are also focused on building a strong relationship with the community and treating their buyers like family. Find your new ride for 2021 and learn more at www.lowpaymentkings.com. Well, that's it for another episode of It's Happening in the Haven. We'd like to thank our guests for today's podcast, Quentin Rowe with WMG Rowe and Sons, Tommy Wolfer with Theater Winter Haven Performing Arts Academy. Be sure to tune in every week to It's Happening in the Haven, available on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. To learn more about Winter Haven and the Chamber of Commerce, visit winterhavenchamber.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hoped you learned a little bit about our community today and even more about the people who are shaping its future. After all, no true community exists without the people who form it. Winter Haven. Some call it a haven. We call it home.